Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. As we make our way towards Easter, I invite you to listen for God's Word as it comes to us this morning from the Gospel of John. Listen for God's Word for you. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they've not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? So, gracious God, we come. We come from the darkness and the shadows into your amazing light. We ask that by your grace you would quiet within us any voice but your own, that we may hear your word. For we pray in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Darkness and light, perhaps on this Daylight Savings Sunday, we can talk a little bit about darkness and light. Mike Royko, who was a news columnist in Chicago, tells the story of four friends on a fishing trip in Wisconsin at a secluded lake. They fished all day, and they returned to the cabin at night where they'd have a few beers, play some cards, And every night they went to bed about 10 p.m. and then they'd get up before dawn for another day of fishing. One of them named Joe was the first to his bunk that night. Exhausted, he fell asleep and he was snoring within minutes. Then one of the friends got an idea. They took Joe's watch off the dresser and they changed the time to 4.45 a.m. They all got together, they changed their own watches, and they changed the alarm clock so that it was set at 4.45 a.m., and then they set it to ring in 15 minutes at 5 a.m. Then the conspirators turned off the lights, they took off their clothes, and they climbed into bed. Fifteen minutes later, the alarm went off. They all got up, they jumped around, shuffled like you would make grumbling sounds in the morning. Someone put on some toast, and another made the coffee, The only miserable one, of course, was Joe. 
He sat there on the edge of his bed, shaking his head, moaning. He kept looking at his watch, complaining. He said, I don't feel like I got any sleep at all. They loaded up the gear, and they all went fishing. And Joe just said, I, I, I must be getting old. Finally, they arrived at the fishing hole. They dropped anchor. Every so often, Joe would glance at his watch, and then he'd look at the eastern shoreline, and he'd say, what, what time have you guys got? 5.40, someone would say. Boy, it's dark, Joe would comment. Then a little later, what time have you guys got? Well, it's 6 o'clock. And Joe began to worry. Shouldn't it be getting light soon? But the time on his watch said 6.40. And he finally, he stopped fishing. He sat there staring in the darkness. And finally, with his voice kind of cracking in genuine terror, he cried out, I tell you, something's wrong. It's not getting light today. It's not getting light. Something's terribly wrong. It's the end of the world. His buddies hooted and laughed. One of them says, it doesn't matter. The fish aren't biting anyway. (laughs) And then it began to dawn on Joe that he had been had. All things considered, he took it pretty well, but they did have to kind of coax an oar out of his hands. Still, Joe's words are kind of haunting. Something's wrong. It's not getting light. Sometimes life just kind of feels that way. You read the paper and it appears to be getting darker and darker in our world, in our politics and in the ways we interact with one another. What can we expect from the Lord of life who gets lifted up in this gospel lesson today. John's gospel begins with the prologue to John that says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and what has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. Light and darkness. We have to choose which direction we want to follow. Some people are drawn to the light, others avoid it. Why is that? This gospel does not use the word faith. Faith, a noun. You won't find it in John's gospel. Instead, you find the word believe. It's a verb. It's active. It occurs more frequently in John than in any other New Testament writing. What we believe matters. Whether we believe, it matters. And there's no neutral ground. Believing is a verb that puts you in life in an active way, not passively. It's not an assent to a set of propositions that makes the Christian life The Christian life begins by those who look on the one who is lifted up, Jesus the Christ on the cross, lifted up in agony and in exaltation. The shadow of the cross falls over us again in this Lenten season, and once again we look upon the Savior of the world, 
who's lifted there. This is, I think, intended to be a double entendre. There's more than one meaning or reference to this idea of being lifted up because there's ambiguity in the reference itself. Three times in this gospel, there's a reference to being lifted up, and this is the first. The irony is that Jesus is lifted up on the cross, but he's also exalted. Paul describes it later in Philippians in these words, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him a name above every name. The Son of Man must be lifted up, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert. It's a strange reference, really. It comes from Numbers chapter 21. Here's the story. The the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. What is the meaning of this weird story in Numbers? And why does this obscure text appear in John's Gospel just before the most famous verse of the Bible? Just this, that when the gospel of God's love in Christ is lifted up among us, it draws out all our venom and all the poisons of the world. It's not enough to simply claim that we're loved by God. God's love also absorbs our greed and our selfishness and all the poison that threatens life. The glory of God's eternal love for you and for me touches the earth on the cross at Calvary. Amidst all the vipers and all the venom of this world. And from that cross, Christ still speaks to us saying, let it go. Let it all go. The backbiting, the venom that corrupts your life and poisons our community and our world, let it go. All that demeans others and all that destroys our own humanity, to be drawn to Christ again, to look again at the cross of Christ, is to believe in Him who loves us, in Him who gave Himself for us, And it's to let all that stored up venom that's killing us finally go. Christ has the power to take it all away. This biblical story probably is something to do with the very symbol for medicine itself. A snake wrapped around a pole. God doesn't wait for us 
to get better before he makes the house call. God's already here among us, among those of us who are poisoned and perishing. When we hear this familiar text, John 3.16, and the story of snakes and the cross, we can do one of two things. We can either look away from the cross and bottling up all that poison that's in us simply perish, or looking to the cross and letting loose our deadliest venom, we begin to live anew. So let's let it go. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John 3.16 is possibly the most memorized verse of all the scripture. It appears regularly even today in athletic events simply as John 3.16. doesn't need to be written out. But as familiar as that verse is, I wonder if we really understand its meaning. People do not gamble their lives or stake their souls on abstract theories of truth or systems of theology as important as they may be. Our children's message this morning was so simple. Reminded me of when Karl Barth arrived on the American shores many years ago and some news reporter stuck a microphone in his face and said, can you summarize the church dogmatics and tell us what it all means? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Great love is worth risking your life for. People will stake everything on a great love. They'll sacrifice everything for the possibility of a great love. Divine love has changed more lives than anything else. The Apostle John lived by it and for it. So did Paul, so did Mary and Martha. Love is the heart of the gospel. It's the center of our faith. It's the reason Paul writes in this life there are three lasting qualities, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I think sometimes non-believers understand this even better than believers do. We hear it so often, we take it for granted. Bertrand Russell was a famous agnostic of the 20th century, and he startled many people on the occasion of his 80th birthday when he declared this. Quote, The root of the matter is a very simple and old-fashioned thing. A thing so simple that I'm almost ashamed to mention it for fear of the derisive smile with which wise cynics will greet my words. The thing I mean, and please forgive me for mentioning it, is love. Christian love. If you feel this, you have a motive for existence, a guide in action, a reason for courage, an imperative necessity for intellectual honesty. 
And although you may not find happiness, you will never know the despair of those whose life is aimless and void of purpose. End quote. That's Christian love. That's the love of God and Jesus Christ. It provides a motive for existence, a guide for action, a reason for courage. And this is an agnostic. It provides protection from despair, aimless, purposeless living. We're not talking here about a love that merely wants good things for others. Love always goes beyond that. It involves being willing to give something of yourself or to give yourself in order that others may have the good that you intend. Real love never stops at desires. It always goes the length of distance to sacrifice. So many of us are so boxed up, we're hoarding ourselves as if we're waiting for some great occasion that never comes. Yet God broke the seal in the heart of God and let love flow out on the cross of Christ. And on that great occasion, the Lord made a choice to invest in the world with love. There's no greater power. It brings healing and resolve. It overcomes enmity and strife. It's the highest expression of Christian belief. Because when we love, we share the nature of God. Like iron that has felt the power of a magnet and becomes a magnet itself, the human heart, touched by God's love in Christ, inevitably loves others. Jürgen Moltmann put it this way some time ago. If God loves us so much that he's prepared to suffer for us and from us and with us, then we too shall at last be free. Free for the transformation God intends. We don't have to hold fast to our image of ourselves or our reputation. For we ourselves are held fast, and we can no longer be lost. So we can unfold and we can change. No one has to nail a person down to his deeds or misdeeds. We can endure the other person and go with him without imposing our own picture or our preconception on him or her. God's liberty and future have been thrown wide open to us in the community of Christ. And so we can liberate one another and hold the future open for one another. Because as Jesus has shown, God has pleasure in us. He's pleased to put up with a great deal from us as we wander and stray through life. End quote. Wander and stray through life. It's a pretty good description of many of us. That's what people do. That's what people have always done. But God loves us. And God intends to lift us up. Eternal life 
is not simply a future prospect. It's a present reality. Every day we're either moving towards the light or moving away from it into the darkness. Christian love, if you feel this, you have a motive for existence, a guide for your action, a reason for courage, an imperative necessity for intellectual honesty. So God did not send his, world, his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that we might be saved through him. So let's stop wandering and straying through life. Believe in God. Believe also in me, says the Lord. You'll find a reason for living at the foot of this cross where Jesus Christ is lifted up and where we find ourselves lifted up too. Thanks be to God. Amen.